this quarter we've been studying from the book of Genesis, looking for the lessons that can apply in our lives today from that uh, beginning of all books of the scripture. We've looked at the creation story itself. Uh, We've seen the fall into sin. We've seen the the flood after the result of that fall as the evil in the world culminated with universal destruction. And then shortly thereafter, we saw the Tower of Babel and the experience once again of the unleashing of wickedness in the world. But always God has a faithful line of people. He has his remnant people. And now we've come to the point of seeing that great paragon of faith, that great tower of faithfulness, Abraham. In fact, Abraham is known as the father of the faithful. In fact, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7 that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Jesus, of course, encountered plenty of people who thought they were going to be going to heaven because they were genetically related to Abraham, but the genuine lesson from Abraham is his lesson of faithfulness that we need to lead to understand. So, the burden of our message today, entitled The Faith of Abraham, and to study, how did that faith come about? Was this was something that he was born with, or did it have to develop? Was it something that he just came with, or did it have to be grown through life experience? And I believe we're going to see very clearly that the latter is the case, that only through suffering and trial was Abraham be, be, did Abraham become this great man of faith that we regard him with, with that now. But before we do any study, of course, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to study your word and promising that you would give us wisdom if we would humbly seek it from you. So, Lord, now we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. And through the pages of inspired writings, Lord, let us see the truth as it is in Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to the book of Genesis, if you would. We're picking up in chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 records the call of Abraham that he received while he was living in Ur of the Chaldees with his father's household. We read in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. By the way, I'll just tell you right now, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages in Scripture. I'm going to do my best to speak clearly and slowly, yet efficiently, as we march on through our message today. Okay? Genesis chapter 12 begins, of course, with verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was Abram's first test of faith, to get up and go as the Lord instructed. He didn't know where he was going, He just said, I will show you, but your job is to go. And thus we read in the very next verse, in verse 4, So Abram, what? Departed as the Lord had spoken to him. He didn't ask where he was going or what the land was like or would there be opportunity for, for career advancement or anything like that. He just said, yes, Lord, I will go. And off he goes. He departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. That's a pretty loaded statement there. Lot's going to end up being a whole lot of trouble, as we see later on. But. And it records his age. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, you would think earlier in the book of Genesis, 75 is really not that big of a deal. People were living eight, 900 years. 
But now, this is after the flood, lifespans have significantly shortened basically to very close to what we have today. So 75 was not in the spring of youth. This was a fully grown, aged man headed off as the Lord directs. But he's promised to be a great nation and to go where God goes, and that's what he does. And notice what he first runs into. Go down to verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the temperance tree of Moreh. And Canaanites were then in the land. Well, he's been taken to this place. He's been promised he's going to go to this land of Canaan, as he was about to be told here. And he discovers that, lo and behold, in the land of Canaan are Canaanites. That it is not just an open land, an open field, where God's just going to magically take him from one place to the next, and it's all ready to go. The place where he's supposed to go is full of people. But look what the Lord says to him. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. So he says, All right, yes, Lord, I will trust you, even though there are people in the land right now. I'll still stay here. Now, let's go to the next test of his faith. Look at verse 10. Now there was a what? A famine in the land. Now, let's just pause right here. Abram's been called out of his family's household, and at first not even told where he was going, but he goes. Then he gets to the place where God says, this is your land, but it was full of people, and he can't go in yet. And while he's waiting for the Lord to lead him, a famine comes along, and the place where he's staying dries out. And so what does he do? And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe, in the land. Abram's faith is tested a third time here when he has to face this famine, and what do you do about it? Now, going down into Egypt, he had been told to go to Canaan, to go out of, out of Ur of the Chaldees and into Canaan, and here he is in a middle ground, and that middle ground dries up. What do you do? You can't really go forward because there's still the Canaanites there, and you're not supposed to go backwards. Commenting on this, we read in his Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129. Abraham could not explain the leadings of providence. He had not realized his expectations. So apparently in Abram's mind, the Lord says, go and I'll go to a land. It will be open. It will be fertile. It will be pleasant. I'll start making children right away. And he had this picture in his mind of what was going to happen. But as we've seen already, that's not what happened. He goes, the land is full of people. Land dries out, no food. He's yet to have any children, and now he's driven to think of what to do. It says here, but he held fast the promise, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. With earnest prayer, he considered how to preserve the life of his people and his flocks. Now think about this. This seems to be a template that Abraham does. Of course, he's still Abram at this point. He'll say, yes, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. And as he goes, he runs into difficulty. And Abram reasons, how can I continue to fulfill God's purpose, yet at the same time get through this tough spot? He's a thinker. He's a schemer. And sometimes that gets him into trouble. His heart's in the right place, but sometimes his head is... Well, let's see what happens here. 
Again, with earnest prayer, he considered how to preserve the life of his people and his flocks. But he would not allow circumstances to shake his faith in God's word. To escape the famine, he went down into Egypt. He did not forsake Canaan. It's not like he was turning away from the promised land, no, no. Or in his extremity, turned back to the Chaldean land from which he came. Where there was no scarcity of bread. I think he was thinking as he got hungry, boy, I remember growing up, we, we never had famine there. It was great there, and there was a temptation to go back. But he said, no, I'm not going to go back. But I can't go forward. So what do I do? I'll go down into Egypt. But he sought a temporary refuge as near as possible to the land of promise, intending shortly to return where God had placed him. Sounds reasonable. Sounds good. But look what happens down in the land of Egypt. Verse 11. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, I'm sorry, went down in the land of Egypt, he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Isn't that really sweet? Just, you know, before we get to Egypt, I just want to let you know how beautiful you are. Hmm. Why are you saying this now? Well, sure enough, there's something up his sleeve. Verse 12, therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you because of your stunning beauty. They will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. And you don't want to live without me, do you? Please say, you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. God's promise that there's going to be a great nation coming out of me and you don't want me to die. You want to see that promise fulfilled and this is the only way to... He's scheming. He's considering. He's reasoning. How can God's plan go forward when I can't see a way? I'll make a way. So it was. When Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for for her sake. So instead of killing him for her sake, because he's the husband, he's now treated well, the other end of the spectrum, because she's his sister. He had sheep, oxen, Male donkeys, male and female servants, male and female, uh, female donkeys and camels. Notice that all the livestock that he gets as a gracious thank you. Boy, the way this is going to come back and bite him in the next chapter. But for right now, just keep that in mind. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Now, I don't know how she found out if the plagues were so bad. He's like, what is wrong with it? And maybe she broke down and said, well, the thing is, why did you not say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, and notice, and all that he had. He didn't say, and give us back all the gifts. Just take all our stuff and get out. Just go. So he comes out of Egypt with great wealth. 
and abundant possessions, which seems like, well, it all worked out for the good. But what happens? By the way, commenting on this experience in Egypt, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 130. During his stay in Egypt, Abram gave evidence that he was not free from human weakness and imperfection. You know, we think about the great faith of Abraham. He's in the hall of faith. Everyone looked to Abraham as the father of the faithful. But aren't you so glad, at least I'm glad, that the weaknesses and shortcomings of God's heroes are recorded in Scripture? So that we don't say, well, they were so different from me that there's nothing I can relate to. I can just hope and pray. No, 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 no. Abraham was a real human flesh and blood man with imperfections and human weaknesses, and they came out from time to time. Notice this. In concealing the fact that Sarah was his wife, he betrayed a distrust of the divine care, a lack of that lofty faith and courage so often and nobly exemplified in his life. And notice again his, rash, his, his methodology. He reasoned that he was not guilty of falsehood in representing Sarah as his sister, for she was the daughter of his father, though not of his mother. Well, she's my half-sister, So let's just play up the sister thing and just not, don't even mention the wife part. But this concealment of the real relation between them was deception. No deviation from strict integrity can meet God's approval. He wasn't supposed to hem and haw. He wasn't supposed to obfuscate the truth. He was supposed to say, this is my wife. And instead, he makes a deal. Makes a compromise. Now I say that that leads to the problems that we see next, and it's true. Go to Genesis chapter 13. Look what we read in verses 1 and 2. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, I don't know if his wealth came only from this. I would imagine that he had a good inheritance coming from his father's household to start with. But then the added wealth on top of this that he gets from the Egyptians apparently is so big that it literally breaks the bank. It's too much to handle. Look at verse 6 in the same chapter. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Apparently, his wealth was so large that it became a problem in his family relations between himself and Lot, and especially the keepers of all those flocks and herds and all that livestock. They begin to dispute and fight and have fallings out among them. Now, there is nothing wrong with wealth inherently. Money is not a problem, but the love of money the division that it can cause. It can tear families apart. And apparently there are trials and discouragements that come with large possessions just as much as there are trials that come with small possessions. The Lord has not in his wisdom gifted me with that problem. But I don't want to make light of it. Apparently it's a significant thing. It tore the household of Abram apart. And of course you know the story. Abram says, this, this is not tenable. We shouldn't be fighting. Our people should be in harmonious agreement. So Abram generously offers Lot the best off, uh, offer he could, the best of the land. And Lot should have deferred to Abraham and his age and his 
but he does not. He takes what he considers the best of the land for himself. And of course, that land was the fertile plain down there where there were cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. Lot takes his possessions, goes somewhere else, and now Abram is left up there all alone in his own household, still no heir. But notice what happens in Genesis chapter 13. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. He keeps making this promise about you're going to inherit the land. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants, plural. But what's the only problem here? Still has no descendants at all. It's all by faith and not by sight, not one bit of it. He doesn't have the land and he doesn't have the kids. And time is ticking by. And he says in verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. He's given this promise once again, a reiteration, a clarification of that original promise, yet nothing seems to be happening. Genesis chapter 14 records the story of Abraham's rescue of Lot. Of course, we know it doesn't go well with Lot in the valley. There's a great war amongst the kings of the cities there, and Lot and his family are taken captive, and Abraham has to raise up an army to go rescue him. And when he does successfully, He's given the opportunity for even greater possessions. Take a look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, starting with verse 21, we read, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for whom? For yourself. But now notice the response of Abram. It almost, to my mind, indicates a little growth in faith. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I've already seen what comes with great possessions. I've got plenty of my own. I don't need a thing from you. And I certainly don't want in history to record it that Abram got his wealth from the king of Sodom. I'll just take my people and go home. You can keep your stuff. Also, it's probably significant that it is here that the Bible first introduces us to the concept of tithing. That Melchizedek comes out and Abram returns a tenth of all he has to Melchizedek at this time. It's an interesting thing. But now we go to chapter 15. We're doing a survey of this faith of Abraham and its growth throughout his life. Chapter 15, starting with verse 1. After these things, that is, after he has the war, after he's successful, after Lot is rescued, after the Melchizedek, all of that is gone now. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Don't be afraid of those kings down there. I'm going to take care of you. Don't be afraid of these people. You're going to be just fine, and I'm going to reward you richly. You don't need their money. You're fine. You did the right thing. 
But now Abram enters into a conversation with the Lord, expressing some of the doubts that apparently he's been harboring for a while. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go, how? Childless. All of this great nation, this great name, all this blessing, it's all predicated on the descendants that you've yet to give me. I haven't even gone into Canaan. I don't have my first child. I'm always rescuing Lot these days. Where is the promise? And now notice this. Seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Had Abram already established a plan B if God didn't come through? Absolutely. He's been reasoning. He's been considering. How am I going to be the father of a great nation? Well, it must be, since God hasn't given me children, it must be this way. And he's starting to scheme again. You have given me no offspring, verse 3 says. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Just child of one of the helper here. He's a great guy, but he's not my own child. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And let's see if there's any room for ambiguity in what the Lord says here. This one shall not be your heir. All right, so the plan that Abraham came up with, plan B, is that going to be the one? No. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from where? Your own body shall be your heir. He's like, I didn't, I didn't know I had to draw the line so clearly as to how babies were made, but I'm telling you, when I said that you're going to be the father, I literally meant that. Not just on paper, but in person. You are going to have a son biologically like every other person does. You just haven't yet. One coming from your own body shall be your heir. And then he gives him encouragement once again. Look at verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. He previously told him he's going to be a great nation. Then he told him it's going to be like dust or the sand of the seashore. Now he comes up and he says, Now it's going to be like the stars in the heaven. And it's not going to be on a technicality through an adoption process in your own household or something like that. No, no, no. It's going to be an actual son born from your body. Very clear. And we find in verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. All right, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. Now, what I find particularly fascinating about this is that usually the story stops there. We say, ah, Abram just simply believed the Lord. What a faithful man. Had no children, didn't possess the land yet, but he's the father of the faithful. But now look at verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Well, what's the obvious answer to how do I know it's going to come true? The obvious answer is because I said so. I spoke it. And thus it will be true. But Abraham said, I do believe, Lord, but I need to see something to build my... And the Lord condescends to meet with him. And what's the rest of chapter 15 is the description of a covenant signing deal, if you will, 
that was common in those days. You would take these sacrificial animals and you'd, you'd kill them and open them and walk between them, thus symbolizing, if I don't hold up my end of the promise, may what happened to them happen to me. Basically, you're putting your life on the line. You're signing on the dotted line saying, yes, we're entering this together. And both parties would walk through. What's fascinating is Abraham sets it up. He walks through and the Lord God walks through himself. And then he gives added clarification. He says, no for certainty. Okay, look at verse 13. Then he said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. So now he gives added details about these descendants, where they're going to live, what experience they're going to go through, how long it will last. He's opening to him all the history still to unfold, giving him all the answers. that Before, he's, he, he got expecting him to just obey because I said so. But Abraham's like, I need to see more details. Help me out. How's it going to work? Remember, he's a schemer. And the Lord condescends to meet with him. And you would imagine that now, after the Lord has done all of this, repeated over and over the same promise, with more detail, with more specificity, it's not going to be some technicality. It's going to be a child from your own body. That surely Abram would be faithful now. But in this context is where we find perhaps the greatest lapse of faith in Abram's experience. Immediately we find in chapter 16. Watch this now. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him what? No children. Now apparently he believed in the Lord and they were continuing to try to make children the way that you're supposed to do so, but no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained who? Me. He doesn't say he's restrained you, because he made it very clear that coming from your own body. So apparently maybe she's saying, it's my body that's the problem. Let's get a body donor. The Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Was she still going to consider it her child that they would raise together? Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps I can have a child by her. She'll just be the surrogate. And it seems to appeal to Abraham's sense of, well, I guess it still technically fits. It would be a child from my own body. But... Since the Lord isn't providing this way, I'm going to scheme and reason and get away around the obvious meaning. And the scripture records, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. It's very much akin to what we saw earlier in Genesis chapter 3, when verse 17, when The Lord God called to Adam and he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the fruit of which I told you not to eat from. Here Abram does the same thing. It says in verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. 
is almost, that line almost seems to justify it. Like, well, they've been trying for 10 years. Surely now it's time to go to plan B. So we went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her, uh, her eyes. So apparently all didn't work out too well in the family. When you have two wives and a barren one, the original, and then the new one does have a baby, but the new baby is supposed to go back to the mother, but then there's a... Di- mm. I can't even possibly imagine how unhomey that home must have felt. Going down to verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Remember the whole adventure began at 75 years old? And apparently about 10 years after, they're like, still no promise. Let's start inventing a way to stay faithful without actually being faithful. And the world that we live in today still struggles with the results of this decision. Yet the Lord does not abandon his chosen servant. By the way, when I look at the Abraham's decisions with Sarah down in Egypt and his acquiescence to this Hagar thing or his proposal of let Eliezer be the heir. He's always trying to negotiate kind of a way around. Have you ever noticed that whenever the word of the Lord doesn't seem to be fulfilling in your life like you'd like it to, or it doesn't seem to lead in a direction you want it to go, that we can get really creative with Bible interpretation? I know that it says this, but I think that it must mean, or in this case, it doesn't really apply to Because the thing is that if I were to do that, then it would, and I don't want... mm. The struggles that Abraham had in his faith are the very ones that we struggle with today. When the Lord says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yes, but I have a... And it's not convenient. Will you obey or not? Regardless of how you see it happening. Genesis 17, look at verse 1, opens up with another age. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Apparently, what is the Lord waiting for from Abraham? Walk before me and be blameless. Just obey. And I will make my covenant between me and you. And you will multiply, and and you will multiply you exceedingly. So clearly, though Abraham has had a son now, from his own body, no less, God's covenant expectation of genuine faithfulness has yet to be accomplished in Abraham's life. For 13 years at this point, remember it was 86 was their last one, 99. How old is Ishmael now? 12 turned in 13. 
That's a big, that's a big deal in the Jewish culture, 12 turning 13, is it not? That's the age of accountability. That's when you would become the inheritor of the father's the eldest son. The preeminence would be bestowed or bequeathed. What do you think Abraham's thinking? Surely the Lord will work through Ishmael. Watch this. Again, for 13 years at this point, Abram has been raising Ishmael. And just when it would normally be time for Ishmael to be reckoned a man and entrusted with the blessing and responsibility as heir of his father's estate, God speaks to Abram once again. Just at that moment, God comes back 13 years later and says, are you ready for fulfilling the covenant yet? Notice what he says. Verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and talked with God saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you were a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now this sounds wonderful. God is reiterating once again the promise that he's been given so many times to Abraham. I'm going to give you real children from your body and I will give you this land just as I promised. Now, as we continue, we'll see here. Look at verse 17. Well, I'm sorry. Let's just keep reading. This is all very important, okay? Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Notice it's not until Genesis 17, almost 25 years after the original call that circumcision was instituted. It says in verse 14, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now the covenant comes with the sign of the flesh. And I have to imagine that if Abraham had been faithful at the beginning, there would have been no need for this sign in the flesh. Thus we see in the gospel dispensation that that sign is taken away. And we can come back to that. But Paul argues very strongly in this. In Romans chapter 4, you can go study it out, that the whole, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, credited him as righteousness, that faith was long before there was circumcision. So why would it require circumcision now that that faith has been culminated in Jesus Christ? But he goes on. Then God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, 
You shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give her a, give you a son by her. Now, when God came in Genesis chapter 12 and says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to be the father of many children. Do you think it would be logical for Abraham to say, with whom? Isn't it kind of a given that you're going to make those babies with your wife? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, he's scheming, well, maybe it'll be uh, someone in my household. Maybe it'll be a paper transaction. And God says, no, it's going to come from your own body. And then he sneaks around that rule and says, well, maybe if it's my body, it doesn't have to be my wife's body. She can use a surrogate. And so now the Lord has to say, look, I don't know how to any planer. It's your body and her body are going to make an actual baby. So for the first time, Sarah is brought into this explicitly. I believe she's been there all along implicitly. But now the Lord has to make it plain. And I will bless her, he says in verse 16, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings, and people shall be from her. Fascinating. So, what happens? So Abram fell on on his face and what? Laughed. You've got to be kidding me. You're still going back to that original, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation in the literal sense of the term? It's been so long, Lord. There's no way you can... That's a joke. And said in his heart... Now, the problem with saying something in your heart is that nobody else can hear it, but God can still hear it, right? (laughs) Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This thing is getting silly at this point. Before, it could have almost been credible, but now the only way it's going to happen is a miracle. God's like, that's my point. I'm tired of you trying to scheme and consider and find out some way to do it yourself. You have to trust me, period. And notice what his, his deal he tries to strike with the Lord now in verse 18. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. We already have a son from my body. Why don't you just take him? That's the child that you had in faithlessness, trying to obfuscate the clear command. You're going to have a child of faithfulness, and that's going to be the heir of your inheritance. By the way, the story ends pretty sad for Ishmael. I'm guessing for about 13 years, he's been built up as the heir apparent the one who's going to inherit, the one who's going to be the father of great nations, right? And here it is. It's about to be his 13th birthday, and instead of receiving the great blessing, what does he get? Circumcised and told that the new baby who's not even here yet is going to take his place as number one in the house. Do you think it might build some resentment or (laughs) bitterness? Oh, yeah. And that becomes a problem. Briefly, we can just skip through verses, chapters 18 and 19. Basically, Abram has to intercede for Lot once again with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it records, if you want to go home and study it, the consequences of of Lot's chosen life in the cities. He loses his wife and several of his children in the fires destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. The story concludes by him being taken advantage of 
of by his own daughters while living in a cave. And those descendants, those incestuous encounters became the Amorites and the Moabites, notorious enemies of God's promised people, Israel. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham again goes back to his old bag of tricks and lies about his relationship with his wife, this time to Abimelech instead of Pharaoh. Falls back in his own way, old ways. And finally in chapter 21, Isaac is born 25 years after the Lord first promised to make a great nation of Abraham. Finally, one child which apparently will become like the stars. And I believe all of that leads up to chapter 22 for this purpose. Chapter 22, verse 1. Abram test, uh, God tests Abraham with the ultimate test of faithfulness. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things, after all these things, that God did what? tested Abraham. Why does the Lord keep testing? We, we, you ever been in a math class when everybody fails? And they're like, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to take the test again. <laughs> Obviously, you didn't learn the lesson. And that seems cruel to have to be tested again, but wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be worse if they just said everybody fails and that's it? <laughs> So the Lord keeps coming back and testing him again. Why? Because the lesson hasn't been learned yet. So he tests him again and said to him, Abraham. He said, here I am. And at this time, I don't know if, if he's looking forward to the call of the Lord. Abraham, where are you? He's like, oh, man. <sighs> yes, Lord. Then he said to him, take now your son, your what? Only son. Is it his only son? It's his only son of promise, right? Your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I think we see a much more faithfully matured Abraham now. Because it doesn't say that he consulted with Sarah. It doesn't say he argued with God. It doesn't say he does anything except in verse 3, So Abram rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He's told to go again. And this time he goes and takes his son and he's willing to to offer him on the altar, if that's what it takes. Skip down to verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So he's literally in the motion. Apparently he's not faking it, he's not putting on, he said, Now, we'll just pause right here in the action. Abraham still likes to think, consider, and reason how God's going to work his plan. God has said, you're going to be a great nation through Isaac, and now I want you to go and kill Isaac. It creates what we call cognitive dissonance. This two plus two is not equaling four. 
and he can't resolve the problem, but he knows God says to do it. What's fascinating is the Bible tells us what he was thinking at that moment. Leave your finger right there in Genesis and go over to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith chapter where it recounts the faithfulness of Abram. Look at verse 17. Hebrews 11, starting with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Look at verse 19 very poorly. What's the first word there? Concluding. He had to think of how is this going to work. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the what? The dead. Even from the dead. From which he also received him in a figurative sense. He was good as dead. He was going to literally kill him. But what got him in the headspace to go through with this action? The thought that if God brought him to life once, he can bring him to life again. And then if I kill him, he'll raise him up. But whatever God says to do, I will do it. Now, what's powerful about that? You and I think, yes, the Lord can raise people from the dead. But this is Abraham. Who is the first person ever resurrected in the Bible? Oh, this is a great trivia question then, right? It's Moses. Moses. Hundreds of years later. Now, we look back, we have the Bible record of all these resurrections in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus himself is resurrected, has promised to bring us back from the dead too. But at this point, no one has ever risen from the dead. And Abraham says, I have no idea how this will work, but I think God can do it even if I do what he asked me to do. That yes, I might lose my job for my faithfulness, but somehow the Lord will provide in a way I don't see yet. That yes, it might cause me harm, it might make me look stupid, it might make me feel dumb, but somehow, if I just simply obey God's word, he will provide even if I don't see how. And he does it. And notice what happens here. And the Lord knows that he's serious, because watch what happens. Back to Genesis, I mean, Genesis 22. Verse 10 again, And Abram stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Did the Lord know he was seriously going to hurt his son? Absolutely. He had to intervene or it would have happened, right? Do not do anything to him. For, now, I love this line. Look at it so closely. For now I, what? Know that you fear God. What's the implication What has he known about him before? He might love the Lord, but he doesn't truly trust him. He doesn't truly put his faith in him. He hasn't truly laid his life down. He says, but now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, from me. Apparently, by the way, there's no problem trying to figure out and scheme, how is the Lord going to work as long as at the end of the day you do what he says? You can, don't go around, don't try to shade, just march forward by faith and do what God says. The story of Abraham demonstrates, I believe, 
The faith is not something you're born with, but something that you build up. Not something merely given, but something that must be grown. Thus we find our application today in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, right next to where we were before. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning with verse 1, we read these words. Therefore we what? Also. Just like all those characters, including Abraham himself. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Which implies that you can have faith written down and still be grown in it till it's done. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, I'm so glad that the Bible doesn't put a candy shell on all of the characters in Scripture. We see that Abraham was a real man with real issues, with real struggles, but the Lord was able to work through him and build him into a tower of faithfulness. And my question is, what can the Lord do for you if you're willing to trust and obey? If you're willing to look unto Jesus and say, Lord, whatever your word says, I'll go with it. Even if I don't understand how it's going to end, even if I can't see the very next step, what you tell me to do, I will do. Laying aside every sin, looking unto Jesus, I believe he's can finish this work of faith in our lives as well. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.